Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Oh, hello. You found Waypoints, where the Waypoints staff and friends take a break to nerd out and deep dive on the culture, wow. art, and entertainment that's inspiring and provoking us lately. I forgot about this. I forgot about this. Gathered around the table this week, we got Patrick Klopek. Is this in a document? Like the same And our document? producer, Ricardo Contreras. <laughs> I think he's got a separate document, Patrick. I think Rob Rob will he will he will contribute he will participate in our little trelloissance. I was gonna but say secretly what he's doing <laughs> is just taking from his documents and putting it into the Trello. Right. So us so we so I guess we can interact with it, but he right. will still have his documents. That is my that is my read on the situation. Has this intro been added to a, the Trello yet? <laughs> I might have a problem where I kind of have. A nesting doll of organizational aids and tools <laughs> that, like, <laughs> might be a Rob situation. Yeah, a, ma- a um, management matryoshka. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and you know the funny thing is, obviously, these things are meant to like make you more efficient. Uh-huh. But it turns out if you pile them on top of one another, you make them less efficient because you have to figure out how they all like. You have to keep them all up. And then you have to figure out, like, how do I specialize them? And it becomes a whole thing. But anyway, that's a 2022 project. We're going to rationalize <laughs> going to rationalize uh, that nesting doll. Uh, in this show, later, we're going to be talking about the last season of The Expanse, uh, Yellow Jackets, the uh, show from Showtime about a high school women's soccer team that goes full, full on Lord of the Flies uh, following a plane crash. And we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, I promised it was happening, 2022, my year of motorsports. We'll discuss it. Uh, was it but, wasn't enough to have a full a Patreon and a full podcast where you talk motorsports. Like, now finally I can talk motorsports. <laughs> <laughs> At last. Oh. Nobody, nobody holding me back. Thanks, Waypoint Plus. <laughs> uh, but we also got ambushed by some breaking news. Like just a bit before we were going to record, which is that Sony has announced that they are acquiring Bungie. Uh, Patrick, do we have a dollar figure for this yet, or is it just like an agreement in principle that we know? So How much? Okay, I, I we do. Um, yeah. So, well, Kato probably already knows. So I we'll just say, we'll I just use Rob it, yeah. as our uh, as our uh, cipher for this. How much? How much do you think it is? So let's lay out some of the stakes, right? Like so. Um, Let's look up these recent acquisitions. So on the high mm-hmm. end, we have, uh, you know, uh, uh, the Activision Blizzard acquired by Microsoft um, for, uh, was it 60, 68.7 a billion? You have uh, the ZeniMax slash Bethesda uh, uh, acquisition, which was for seven point something billion. Let's say seven billion. 
Uh, let's see, the take two Zynga was for 12.7 billion. Um, what other acquisitions am I missing? But I think to lay some groundwork for my guess, yeah, I think all of those are much larger scale acquisitions than this would mm-hmm, like plausibly mm-hmm. be. That uh, that would be I, that's enough. I think that gives us like like there's a seven, there's a twelve, yes. and then there's the big boy. There's the 60, 60, 69. Um, so where do you th- where do you think they come out on Bungie? I would guess <sighs> every like things tend to get inflated at like moments like this. But I would still say they're not crossing the billion mark. I would still say like this is at most a seven hundred million dollar acquisition. <laughs> okay, Jesus. Right. So you're wrong, and I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> give you an opportunity to reevaluate um, your guess and to continue with uh, let's talk, maybe some uh, lower extra context lower, <laughs> which is wow. that we are in the midst of of a race of consolidation, very akin to what happened. Over the rise of, of of Netflix, Hulu, the HBO Max, like we're more towards the end stage of the quote streaming wars or whatever, mm-hmm. and we're in the beginning stages of a very similar sort of arms race occurring in games. So knowing that that would naturally in both in some ways inflate the value of properties, but also encourage companies to purchase them now before the inflation really hits and it causes them to be cost more. If you were to go up from seven hundred million, where would you land? I wouldn't go over a billion. <laughs> but what if you did? Uh, well, then I'm spending someone else's money. You are spending someone <laughs> and else's I money. I might, like, I, okay. Uh, you need to I think mean, bigger. Oh, my God. This is the dumbest deal. You're kidding me, right? No. No, 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 no. They didn't would, buy Bungie for like $3 billion, did they? Uh, 3.6. <laughs> <laughs> 3.6. I guess I guess they're seeing a lot of returns from those Sony exclusive strikes that they've been dropping. <laughs> oh wow, I forgot. Yeah, they did the math yeah. on the on those strikes and realized ah, if we just had more of these, we'd be we'll be fine. And the next, no, you got to think of an you have to think of a purchase just like you're buying a house. You know, it's not you know the next couple of years. It's it's a thirty year investment. Uh, yes, yeah, three point six billion is 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 the is the number for. Uh, Bungie, um, the details of which are pretty interesting uh, because specifically um, Bungie has said they're going to, it's being described as an independent subsidiary of Sony. They are going to continue to be a multi-platform studio with what is called the option to self-publish. Um, and they're still working on Destiny 2, expansions to Destiny franchise in the future, along with uh, new properties. And in response to a specific question, I don't have that in front of me, but that was basically like in the fact that they posted on their website, I was like, well, I guess we should just expect like the long-term deals, new IP to be Sony exclusive. And they said, no, like I, we weren't thinking of it that way. So anyway, that's to give you some broader context on where where this this deal ends up. But yeah, I, it's a lot. It's a lot of money, Rob. <laughs> it's a lot. Of, it's a lot of money. Like the thing I couldn't like... I just the thing I couldn't get over. Well, I mean, I suppose how big is Bungie these days? And there was like headcount and pretty big. Like, I suppose physical plant pretty big, bigger than bigger that. than you think. I don't know what the headcount is off the top of my head, but my impression of this this the studio it, it's bigger than you would think. Uh, right, probably bigger than you would think, but also smaller than you might yeah. guess. You know, like both those things could be true for running 
a, you know, a really big life. Right. And, and then you're buying a property that, yes, it brings in like steady, probably large chunks of revenue. But at the same time, it's also expensive to maintain and develop. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like, I'm not sure. Like, I'm never sure how to rate Destiny as like a thing to acquire um, because it's like it's a viable concern, but I don't know that it's like a massive profit center. Right. So I don't know that you're like buying into and now he's just reap those rewards. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they bought Destiny. I think like these are this is a long term investment in live service specialization, which is something that Sony has no expertise in. Like, look at the way they have fumbled all attempts to do even like kind of like the basics of like streaming games. Like they focus on single player cinematic big budget experiences. Um, that is their bread and butter. That's Insomniac, Naughty Dog. Um, like that, that is, that is what the, you know, Santa Monica, like that is what they produce as a company. But like a lot of where things are going is, you know, and also just in the interest of diversification, I think this is essentially them saying, we, we don't know how to make these types of games. This studio is very good at it, has made a very successful one of those. Are they? We'll probably Did be they? able to. Destiny? I, I think the financials of that are less important than the fact that Destiny is incredibly popular, has a devoted fan base, and is by, as much as people complain about it, a game that is beloved. Yeah. Um, and and is one that extracts money from people on a regular basis. Uh, I think I think that's what Sony bought was we would like a studio that is very good at that. And yeah, you know, I I think this is one of those cases where like I don't know where the exclusivity will map in the future. You don't spend billions of dollars to acquire something that you don't bend to your will to some degree. <laughs> um, but it is also the case that this if these deals usually obfuscate what that's going to be. Look at how Phil Spencer was wishy-washy about what's the future of co- – we, we would love to honor these existing agreements uh, <laughs> as opposed to here saying they will be independent. They have the option to go multi-platform. That seems to – you know who knows where that will what that will look like in five years and Sony will find ways to make Bungie benefit them beyond just being a live service passive income. Um but I, I look at this deal as like a, just like a broad injection of live service talent into a company that doesn't have that kind of specialization. And then they'll figure out the rest later, really, uh, because it's like, well, now you've got the people, you've got the IP, you've got the specialization. How does this materially benefit other than us like getting to quickly have some passive income? I don't know, um, but they can figure out those details as they go forward. Kata, where are you, where are your feelings at? This is this hits closest to home for you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It feels like if I were working at Bungie, it would have been like it feels like a little like out of the firing pan and into the fire. Like it wasn't that long ago that they got out of the Activision deal and Sony's bigger <laughs> than Activision. So it's just like it feels like there will inevitably down the line be more if not uh the same at least if not more pressure to deliver certain on certain benchmarks on certain time scales that are they bigger than activision if you were to buy a sony what would it, co- is it would it be more than seven how much is sony i mean i'm just saying i'm genuinely asking Sony's how much is sony worth? Sony, activision? Big. sony big sony market how cap much is sony 133.89 yeah. billion according to google 
that's less than I would have. That that's but not, still bigger I mean, that's than Activision. One and a half. Yeah, no, I I agree, but it's it's one and a half Activisions. It's not. I mean, that's also the that's the thing about the Sony yeah. Microsoft bit is like, yeah, they're like, but like Microsoft's financial resources are like incomparable compared to to a Sony. Sony right? makes nice cameras underselling yeah. TVs and like PlayStations <laughs> and then a bunch of stuff that they've closed divisions down. Microsoft makes windows and like windows. tons of backbone infrastructure that people need. Yeah. Like yeah. it just doesn't compare. Right. No, right. I see those two don't at all, but yeah, I just, um, I, it feels, it feels rough, you know, like I, I don't know what, um, obviously they've said that Bungie is like free and clear of this, but I still am expecting like, Whenever after the like announced expansions hit, like whatever comes after that will have some sort of influence of this deal, like squarely on it, whether it's uh exclusivity or like again, maybe they're going back to the exclusive strike uh model. Um, but and that that deal kind of like sucked all over. Like, we just got to good crossplay in Destiny. I can play with my Xbox friends on PC. I can play with my Xbox friends on PlayStation, and it works. And now that sort of thing feels more and more in danger as, like, oh, if they're gonna be carving up the space again where only certain strikes happen in certain places and things like that, it's gonna be a nightmare. Um, And, like, Maybe that never happens, but it's just like when you're talking about companies at this big, like they're not gonna leave something that could make the money alone for like X amount of time. A couple counterpoints, though. Yeah. Like, so obviously I'm the hater here. Uh, Like, I underrate the value of Bungie and (laughs) Destiny and all this, but like the creators of Halo, (laughs) right? Um, yes. I still think that Uh, weight is there, even if those people aren't. But right. But like, but where I'm going with this is like one, I think Activision has really draconian expectations that I am not sure is are as in place as they would be at Sony. I think Sony understands the value of like a decent performer a bit mm-hmm. uh, like they like, yes, they have with so much AAA games like there is there is their move away from uh God, Patrick, the the motorcycle Sons of Anarchy Zombies game. Oh, Days uh, Gone. Yeah. So, like, they're less interested in, like, let's keep backing Days Gone. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that they would be looking at, like, the Call of Duty type numbers that, like, maybe Activision was hoping uh, to see out of Destiny. And more importantly, Destiny's a known quantity at this point. Like, I don't right. think anyone involved in this deal is, like, and now how do we, how do we, like, get everything we can out of this golden goose? Like, I think it's unlikely to me that you're going to see a lot of appetite to let's say go to a destiny three and once again, play exclusivity games uh, when the one transition was already so tough. Yeah. Uh, It just seems unlikely to me that they will start fucking with that existing ecosystem as much that like has finally gotten into a decent place. Um, So like my expectation would be, they'd be looking for other outcomes uh, from this rather than like, bilking the destiny fan base i think like one reason i tend to be a bit cynical about maybe destiny but maybe more like 
more open to the idea of this this uh, deal being good for Bungie and like people like Bungie games is that the impression I have always received is that Destiny, like you know, it, it, they've always had that problem of like how do we feed the endless appetite for content? Um, you're kind of needing expansions to hit and then sort of finance the next year of development. It always like from the outside feels not shoestring because like the production quality is there. They like make good stuff, but it also seems like they're constantly constrained by the fact that like they have to always like finance their next year of development on the backs of whatever is the new expansion. And I'm not sure they've been like, I'm not sure they have like, it seems like it would be a really fitful and stressful way to run a business uh, where you're kind of hoping for these injections and then you have to budget everything out. Uh, it's a bit like it's a bit like running running a company as like just a, a ginormous freelancer in some ways where it's like as soon as as soon as we deliver this project, then we can budget out our next year. And I'm sure that's not entirely the case, but I think right. one of the things that the arrival of a company like Sony on the scene does for you is it just stabilizes cash flow, right? And right. it makes it easier on those conversations about like, what are our resource levels? So like I, I kind of have a suspicion that the 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 shackles that will come with the steel, the handcuffs, I suspect they will probably not be as onerous as the constraints that come with the fact that you are running a live service game on the back of still a predominantly like retail product model. Uh, so that is kind of like where, where I would like be hopeful for the Sony acquisition is maybe Sony like can sort of look at, look at destiny and Bungie can be like, Hey, if we had our druthers, if we were reimagining our business model, how we would do this, here's what we would do. And Sony, because they're not sort of, <laughs> they're not sort of path dependent the way Bungie is could probably make some of those transitions happen. So that's like, that's kind of my view is like where this starts to make sense is I feel like destiny is probably a thing where might even be better if it gets some outside investment. I'm not sure this is something you milk. It might be something you grow. Well, and I think this is an instance in which, you know, in talking to some folks in and around this deal um, that, like, look, where Bungie, Bungie <clears throat> wants to make games of a certain scale and ambition, right? Like, they their swings are really big. Like, they could have made Destiny under Microsoft, and and Microsoft kind of balked at what they were what they wanted to do post Halo, and that was a huge part, you know, what what contributed to to the breakup of of those uh, companies uh, years ago. Um, being independent and then having to find the financing to pull off things like that. I got the impression got increasingly stressful and weird and that the notion of being able to take those swings underneath like a corporate umbrella rather than having to go out and find those funding sources was a source of comfort in going after a deal like this. It's like, you know, I mean, but you already did that, right? Like they've been developing a new IP in collaboration with Tencent a studio that, or, or uh, you know, a company that for all the, for all the handling we're doing about consolidation, like Tencent's been out here buying people for a long time. Mm -hmm. It's just like companies like Sony and Microsoft just catching up to the party that Tencent has been doing. They just haven't been doing the name brand ones that are like very familiar to the people on this call, right? Like they're snatching up all sorts of developers. They just announced the, the studio they're doing with, uh, 
the uh, the the Yakuza guy, right? Uh, uh, what's that de- the designer's name? Oh, I don't remember the designer's name. Wow. Okay. Well, you know what I'm talking about. But yeah. anyway, like, they're, they've been doing this for a while. This is sort of like catching up on on um into like sort of our orbit of games and uh, things that we follow, especially in like the non-mobile space. Um, and then uh, in concert with that, one thing that was pointed out to me earlier today by someone not associated with uh, this deal, but just sort of observing it from afar. And someone had mentioned this to me separately when the Activision Blizzard deal happened was, um, you know, Bungie themselves just recently had a long, uh, really good investigative piece by uh, Rebecca Valentine over at IGN about that company's like culture um, and like inability to uh, uh, self-police and uh, help its uh, staff when there were issues of harassment and 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 uh, and other problems. Um, as these companies get acquired, if you have an issue at a studio, if you're at a company that seems bad, these acquisitions also mean you are there are fewer places to go. It's like, oh well, I guess I'll just go to another studio. Well, that studio is also owned by the parent company where like you had a bad experience at that one studio. And so as this consolidation continues. Um, the more studios get under a single corporate umbrella, the increased chances are that, well, if things are bad, where are you supposed to pivot to? Because the other places <laughs> might be under the same place. And then you have to just rely on like that specific developer somehow having, you know, uh, handled it better or better uh, corporate culture than the one you were at. But like, that's also one of these like weird consequences of uh, the consolidation that I hadn't really considered was that it makes it more difficult if you have a poor experience to find somewhere that could be a fresh start because the fresh start might contain the same email login <laughs> that you had before. Yeah, I mean it's and like it's certainly at its most pointed around issues of like harassment and abuse, but it also just again like goes to stuff like um we're all familiar with the fact that like not many places do raises anymore or like career development. Uh, and so, like, I, I think we're all sort of used to this model of, uh, well, if you want to, like, grow in your industry, you change jobs, right? You you go you go somewhere else. Well, if it's if it's all if it's a world of like all lateral moves under the same umbrella, I imagine that that also starts to feel again, like a little bit um, in closing, right? Where, where it's just it's, it's harder to get a better deal um, on a variety of fronts if increasingly like the company is able to set rates across a wide variety of developers that might be a landing place for you. Uh, So, yeah, like, I don't know. It's, um, I think Sony also indicated that there more acquisitions are coming. Uh, Not a, not a huge surprise. Um, I mean, Square, Square just seems, that's the one that a lot of people come back to. Sony already, you know, they essentially bought, you know, a year year plus of exclusivity of Final Fantasy VII Remake. It seems like they also have the same deal in place for, was it 16? Is that the next one? The the um, uh, that, that would make a lot of sense. They seem to yeah. already be sort of doing the kinds of deals that, that would be in place for a company that owned them. I mean. Uh, anyway, but I think, you know, you think of Capcom, Square Enix, like those are companies whose like evaluations would fall within the, Right, like three to ten billion range, um, and so that not I guess at this point nothing would shock me, right? I, I don't know how you, how we go, we get to this point and be truly taken um, by any deal that got announced 
anytime soon. Um, and my guess is a lot of that stuff's going to happen this year. I I think this is not like, oh, they, they're they going to buy Square in 18 months. It's like, no, I think if they ended up buying Square, like I, I wouldn't be shocked if we heard about it before the middle of this year. Because um, <laughs> that stuff just seems to be happening in increased clip. And I, I've seen speculation that maybe this this Bungie acquisition was a result of the Activision stuff. Like That stuff does not happen <laughs> that fast, folks. I bet it was a response to the Zenimax acquisition, right? <clears throat> like that's a longer timeline in which I, I between the Zenimax acquisition, I've also heard that the the Game Pass deal that happened with MLB kind of shook Sony um, in a way that got them to start rethinking how they approach different business models and and how they need to diversify is like how they make money on their games. Um, but uh, yeah, they didn't like see the Activision deal and call up Bungie and be like, that would, not be, that would not be the most effective parry of that move. Oh, you bought no. Activision? Well, we bought Bungie motherfuckers. <laughs> You bought all you bought Call of Duty and all the Blizzard games. We got Destiny. Like well, it's just like they got Myth. Rob, isn't that that? I believe no, sadly, people are telling me Take Two owns Myth. Really? Um, which hey, straightforward How? from here. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a one of those games that like there was a Myth three. Bungie only made two games. Myth three right. happened. Um, so like, I, I like it, you know, it's like a lot of 90s games, right? Where, where eventually like the license sort of makes its way out into well, the world. Rockstar published Oni, right? Like one of the few. Oh yeah. Isn't that right? Rockstar owned by Take-Two. Uh, I wonder if that, I don't exactly know where the A to B to C is, but like that was, I remember Oni, one of the, um, uh, an, you know, an action game that Bungie released, uh, for the, for the PS2. Uh, or at least the PS2. I think it must have been Xbox. Yeah, as well. Rockstar Games, uh, Take Two Interactive, published. I wonder if that's somehow wrapped up in. I don't know exactly how Myth gets to Take Two, um, but um, well, I mean, I guess I do. Like, if they were involved in the publishing in some way, like that was an era in which it, gathering of not- developers might have been the vector for that. Oh yeah, there you. Okay, all right. Mystery: The Wolf Age, Take Two Interactive, mm-hmm. Gathering of Developers. So I bet you, uh, yeah, it all. It all moved on. Oh, okay. Myth three in the in the opening graph. In 1999, Take-Two purchased 19.9% of Bungie's shares. But when Microsoft Bungie outright in 2000, the rights for Oni and Myth were transferred to Take-Two. So, like, hmm. once Microsoft, <laughs> like, caused Myth to, like, cause Bungie to completely exit, like, that part of the market, um, all this sort of stuff sort of devolved outside outside the company uh which is really too bad because i think that is exactly the sort of uh you know game changing ip uh that sony frankly craves right now uh and maybe one of the last points i would make is that uh maybe the takeaway here uh is that the best thing to do is just to own a pc (laughs) yeah i mean this is you know when we're thinking about like like i just i cannot help but feel that Maybe Sony's still fighting like the console war in terms of like we want to move units, but I don't know that Microsoft is. Uh, and I suspect like the the model like as we're contemplating like the streaming services and the libraries you can bring to bear, maybe they just want to be you know when you open up your your smart TV or something, it's populated with all the different streaming services, and there's some like really good ones. You're like here's my here's my S tier streaming services, and then it goes down the line to like. Not S tier. Um, 
and I think so, like Sony would like to in that world, like if they do end up going that direction, probably still be at S tier and not be like Paramount Plus. Shout out to Master Pete. Chief. Oh, oh my god that tra- that trailer looks like trash sorry <laughs> i don't know what i'm apologizing for but that it looks sorry it's i mean a very sorry to all halo fans hoping for a good tv show i guess yeah they've been kicking that there was that there's that anime million years i heard people found some of that enjoyable <laughs> <laughs> it's the the that the halo show has this weird this is this has happened. This actually happened with Cowboy Bebop as well. It's not a new thing to uh, streaming shows that clearly, clearly cost a shitload to make somehow look incredibly cheap. Um, and I'm not I'm enough of a visual effects cinema to know exactly why we're arriving in that place. But like Cowboy Bebop, like I watched like an episode. I was like, I know this isn't cheap. It looks cheap. Like Halo, I know this isn't cheap. It looks cheap. Um, and it's just a weird part of these high concept well, sci-fi fantasy shows that like would have been movies 15 years ago. Right. And then now are TV shows. And maybe that's part of it where like the budgets get stretched so thin across 10 episodes that there's only so much you can do. But I will uh, also like, I still like, I really like that forward unto dawn, like mini webisode thing. Mm-hmm. And the smart thing they did there, they didn't show any fucking covenant. Like the amount, <laughs> the amount of covenant that actually appear in that show is vanishingly small. Most of it is like, you know, it's a military sci-fi, like, you know, it's 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 kids in a military academy uh, living in sort of the cloistered world of that. And it's done, the, the approach they take there is like horror movie, right? Where it's like, why is, why is Master Chief like the hero and savior of humanity? Because until Master Chief shows up, like literally everyone just gets murked by the covenant. That's it. That's the world of Halo is everyone's like, all right, guys, come on, let's dig deep. Let's fight these covenant. And then they all fucking die until Master Chief comes along. And like, that's, you know, you can make a story about that, but it, it like, I think the approach they take in that old series was it's a horror story. And the minute you're like, and we're going to make the show about Halo and Master Chief, it's going to be like, all right. So uh, where the Muppets at? <laughs> Oh God, that would have been better. It would have actually. So hold on. Yeah. If they had been like, and we are announcing our partnership with the Jim Henson Creature yeah. Workshop for fucking doing a big old Halo. Yeah, an elite like or better yet, walking running around. <laughs> better yet, the Jim Henson Creature Workshop is running the Halo series. <laughs> like the spirit of Far Cry lives. Uh, not Far Cry. Um, Farscape lives on. Yes. In Halo. Yes. Um. Now that. You know, license to print money from me and Danielle. I don't know about the rest of you. I'm in. But I I'm think in. I love yeah. practical effects enough. That'll be great. <laughs> uh. Why don't Why don't the Covenant aliens ever move? Because they can't. <laughs> they figured that it's gonna out. Make those, that's a, it's going to make a, those shoot, make, make the, the fight, the combat scenes a little They use turrets. <laughs> they use turrets. It's fine. It's fine. You're like, oh, no, Master Chief, they're set up at another turret. I've got this. And, like, it's fine. Like, everything, like that's Halo. Look at him go. He's so heroic. They're in a tank. You're never going to see the little Muppets inside of it. I've got this. Oorah. All right. So excited for all the scenes with the arbiter in them. 
<laughs> with the what? With the arbiter. Just lots of dialogue. Just have just get real close up on those lips that don't make sense. <laughs> That'd be great. I would I I would love that. Uh so I guess as we've been talking a little bit about corporate overlords taking over everything, we might as well talk about The Expanse, uh, <laughs> which just wrapped its last season. Uh, it began life as a sci-fi show. It ended life as an Amazon Prime show. Um, Kato, this is what you've been into lately. Uh, so let's let's check in yeah. on The Expanse. Uh, now, I think, Patrick, you, you, you remember The Expanse as like, all set up. You saw our first episode. It's like a private detective trying mm-hmm. to find, uh, you know, a lost heiress. There's a dude on a cargo ship. He's a space trucker. Basically, things get fucked up there. Kata, what's the Expanse season six about? Um, hey, before, so, hey, before we get there, do, do you want to do you want to set up how spoilery you are or aren't going to be in this discussion so people can? I think we're gonna be spoilery of the seasons up to season six maybe this season we'll talk more thematically yeah. about like the thing that's just airing but like yeah if you if you're like hey now that it's finished this run i want to get into that expanse we're going to talk about like what happened over the last like you know five five seasons right. of this yeah i'll mark that here uh so we open season six with uh char asnabal from Gundam pointing a rock at Earth and it's Char's counterattack and uh, everyone's already seen that movie so that's, you know, spoilers I guess for The Expanse Season 6, it's Char's counterattack. Um, this, yeah, it's a movie, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a season about a rebellion of belters, you know, the people who live on the belt and were traditionally um, underclass, like, um, What's the word I was looking for? Uh, a no, I mean they—they they are they are the underclass, yeah, yeah, proletariat. Like because yes. in the world, of the expanse, the belt is where all the world, like all the resources Earth is of the inner planets. Earth is tapped. Yeah. There's a there's a there's a there's a people on Mars, but Mars never had resources. It was just about expansion, and the the belt, you know, the asteroid belt is actually where mining and minerals and like things resources come from the belt, and therefore. Belters, people who live out there and work the mines and work the like all of the construction and um, all of the hard labor jobs, basically, is all this one class of people that also become their own um, sort of separate. um, What's the word I'm looking for? Not not. Not like ethnic group because it's a mixed ethnic. Group, no, but it's but a like culture. A they culture. Like a, That's the word culture. I was looking for. They, yeah. it, it's become their own culture. They have their own language, which actually is one of I think the most interesting and like well it's realized. A really convincingly exec- yeah. Uh, like yeah. like space creole that I've heard ever. Like, um, like the I think that they just did a stellar job of like picking out the ways people talk about things based on their sort of position in the, in the society. Like a lot of the Belter Creole has to do with those jobs that they were kind of all doing at, as you know, humans expanded out into space. Um, but there's a faction of those, of those people that are now uh, rebelling against the, the inner planets, the Mars and earth. And, um, we're seeing basically the that that 
conflict, which actually has been spanning spans from the first. Like they, the first season is mostly set up for this, but then after that, it kind of becomes the like running through line of well, these three kind of sectors of humanity are the 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 things that are coming into conflict most often, and how the yeah. politics between them is kind of what I think is you can make the overarching the uh, the the overarching plot of the expanse is um is yeah, it's about is class a, it's about different classes of people and how they struggle for power um but yeah but it's also about revolutionary politics right. i think this is like one of the things that um again a lot of these themes surface in previous seasons but like the way they evolve is really fascinating so like in season 1 which i think was very divisive and i think a lot of people were sort of turned off by it they do so much table setting it's yes. like you're just you're getting introduced to a blizzard of acronyms um and you have to learn that there's like factions within the belter uh like militant fronts uh the opa yeah uh that like have like you know running disputes over what is the best way to advocate for uh, for for their rights, uh, for 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 their liberties, um, and so like the first season like sets so much of the table for that. But fundamentally, it's about like there is a MacGuffin. There's like this the there there is this like alien infection at work in in the world, and everyone sort of has to react uh, to that in that first season, and and that sets up a series of crises that tend to revolve around. Earth and Mars both being armed to the teeth and like ready to kill each other at a moment's notice. Um, yeah. And, and I, I think, think it's sort of, it's, yeah. it, it's very funny how the first season sets us all up through the detective character, which means like he ends up because he's an outsider to the belt ends up asking a lot of questions that help the world building along, but also feels like a fundamentally different show than you're actually getting. Like you're not expecting space opera you're expecting detective story but really this the detective story is just long uh, uh exposition for a sp- uh, like s- political space opera basic not maybe space opera is the wrong term but you know like politics in space yeah well <laughs> and i think one of the things that really impresses me about this series and i'm i'm i've been sort of delighted with how it continues to pay off in this last season is that the stakes continually change. The politics are not mm-hmm. static. Like right. a yeah. lot of times when I think about shows like this, and I need to be clear, I haven't watched Babylon five. I know huge, huge <laughs> gap in my knowledge, but I haven't seen it. Um, didn't really like mesh with it. Uh, when I was in high school, I'll, I'll get around to it. Don't worry. Uh, but when I think about a lot of shows that like maybe, Deep Space Nine is is maybe akin to this. Uh, there there is a there is an idea that the show sort of gets stuck with a premise. Like this is what the show is about. This is probably what tends to happen week to week. Even Battlestar Galactica, even though there is like an overarching plot, eh, you know the ba- <laughs> the Galactica is still out there, like on the run from the Cylons. Like there's a brief blip where they're not, but like for the most part. All aboard this giant like space submarine, mm-hmm. fleeing from uh the from the robots. Watching the season, it's like the world we came in on doesn't exist. The world that replaced it also doesn't exist. Uh, and 
this last season, we are seeing like the most militant, hardcore, revolutionary ideology among the Belters start to eat itself at the moment of its own success. Mm-hmm. Um, and like part of that is to a degree, like Belter politics were always about like negotiations between splinter factions. And like, there was like from one angle, it's politics from another angle looked a bit like mob wars. The <laughs> two things are kind of similar uh, in, in the belt. Uh, and this, in this latest season, so much of it is about dealing with the fallout of like one of these factions finally decisively um, resting control of the movement and delivering their greatest victory over, over earth, uh, which, you know, in the last season was the slow motion horror of realizing <laughs> that they were just going to beat the shit out of earth with asteroids. And they do like in this season, it it's fucking like, happen. uh, is earth dying? Might be. Uh, I, I have issues because I finished <laughs> the, the season um, but I will say even from the beginning of the kind of rise of Marco and Naros, I was a little weary of his, of his characterization. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, the it, it always kind of ends up being the, the big trope of these things when you get the furthest reaction, like the furthest, like the, the, the most militant re- uh, revolutionary, there's kind of a type, right? It's the the reason that he gets there is because he's like super charismatic, but also that charisma is all just a a a front to like mask like really kind of selfish and evil intentions, even though they're speaking uh, words of revolution and like you know uplifting their own people. Um, and um, I guess if we're not getting into season six spoilers, I won't go into like where that ends up, but I think I. I've never, I feel like I was always more interested in the seasons prior to him being the like main, cause he, he kind of becomes this main antagonist for the show, which the show never had before. Really? I mean, there were like, no, people it who, doesn't do favors. Yeah. Yeah. There were people who ebbed and flowed in well, and out of saying, being like, like the, the like uh person of the, that, that is most being Jared focused Harris on. Jared Harris was in season one. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, I mean, yeah, like, like I, th- I think this was one, this is one of the things that hits me is like, I feel like some of what their direction for Marco Anaros is to your point about charisma. Yeah. But like, how do we show that he's like this really dangerous revolutionary in every scene? <laughs> you need to know this guy fucks. Yeah. Like this in guy every scene, it's, like, it's, <laughs> it's incredible. Like it does not matter what he's doing. Yeah. Like they can be like, sir, the enemy fleet is within range. You can like at any moment <laughs> you get the sense that he's like, so we got a few minutes, right? Why don't we all just strip down and just start like taking each other on these like displays. God. Like, Who's feeling it? I am. That is that is Marco to to a T. Yeah. Um, and so some of it is like, and I like I don't think I don't even think <laughs> I don't even think he's like Hispanic ethnicity, but to an extent, it's like here's your <laughs> demonic Latin lover. Uh, like it's yeah. like 90s Antonio Banderas energy. Just yes. Like, oh my god. Yes. That from this character. <laughs> Not even. 
not even talking about anything sexy, but like it, it's just happening on the screen. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that uh, I've generally just have I found it more interesting when it was uh, kind of breaking across more disparate factions then it like really has to kind of focus down because it's i mean it's a season it's a series ending right there's 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 got they, they had to come to some sort of uh climax and they've kind of rested it all on marcos and his free navy being the like primary antagonist um i think so well, much- i have another question about that mm. which is I think one of the big questions, people like it's not original observation. Um, there's a series about exploited working classes, yeah. uh, just the hoovering up of resources by powerful, like central figures. Um, and obviously, this is a like the reason the show is on Amazon is because Bezos was a huge fan. Uh, that like genuinely funny. he seen <laughs> like he loved. Yeah, <laughs> people people love people love the sci-fi. They just don't they don't see themselves <laughs> don't, in it, yeah. right? Like, what's that hard drive article <laughs> where like new reboot new reboot of Avatar going to make clear to everyone that you are the fucking Fire Nation? <laughs> um, like, I, there, there's a bit of that here, but one of the things I, I kind of wanted to ask you is like, do you also feel that with the rise of Marco in particular, did this show tweak its message to become like? anti-revolutionary politics in a way that like maybe it wasn't when they were doing their own thing on sci-fi uh yeah i think so i think a little bit that is what that is the feeling that marcos gives me that marco inaros gives me um that it feels like over the past couple of seasons uh at a certain point, drummer was one of the more uh, kind of um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not violent, but like, um, I mean, militant, I guess. Uh, yeah. Uh, OPA members, and um, it feels like she's been softened to a palatable degree in yes. order for Marcos to rise to an even higher, like, villainous degree. You know, um, and. Uh, that's all I'll say about that without spoiling season six. <laughs> um, uh, you should, you maybe, maybe, yeah, like there's, we should maybe do a spoiler section when I rap. I'm, yeah, I'm we, you episodes. need to rap and then we can just talk yeah. about where it goes because it, it is all this setup there that happens as the, as the show transitions to Amazon. And like, I'm curious because I haven't been able to, I haven't actually looked up how closely this tracks with what happens in the books. Cause this is a series based on books to a certain degree. Like they're going to pull most of their big plot points out of those books and whether or not this change happens that way. I'm, I'm really curious because it does seem to kind of line up with when they stopped on sci-fi and then continued it on Amazon. Um, where before I like was cheering for the radical, like the, 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 heart, the most militant, OPA radicals, I was kind of on their side. And like, that was what was interesting about the show is that I could be like, I cannot be on Marco's side. Oh, I, I, like, right? Austin like, and I talked about like that scene where Holden is at the OPA meeting where Jared Harris, mm-hmm. uh, Jared, Har- Jared Harris is, uh, oh God, it's, 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 it's not Fred. Fred's the Fred other Johnson and, and 
Oh, it's Jared been so, Harris. Yeah, it's been so long. <laughs> Shit. Fred, what, sh- what show is Jared Harris not in? The man, I don't the man, know. The man sleep. He, he only is... does. The, yes, Patrick, because the key is he only does the starts of shows. That's true. That's and right. And then he's like, time <laughs> for me to vanish. Like, Carnival then, Row. You're like, hey, Jared Harris is in this. Not for long. <laughs> hey, Foundation. Jared Harris is in this. Mm, Jared Harris. How much, though? <laughs> Jared Harris invented the. Uh, in. 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 Uh, inherited the TV version of Sean Bean's curse. <laughs> yep. Or even like the terror, because you know how the terror is going to end from the moment it begins. But like even there, it's like, oh man, what's Jared Harris going to do next? Get drunk and disappear for two episodes. For oh, he's reasons. so good in that show. He's so good in that. The I don't know how the terror season two turned out, but the terror season one is is great. And I still never watched Chernobyl, which uh, I've also heard he's excellent in. But but there's the scene in like in that second season where um what the fuck is Jared Harris's name? Uh <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to I'm searching. I'm looking. I'm trying to find it. Anderson Dodd. Anderson. That's right. Yes. So there is a scene where our heroes sort of get caught in the middle of an OPA debate, like a debate among the the umbrella group of these militant factions and Fred Thompson, uh, Fred Thompson, <laughs> Fred Johnson yeah. is like seeing this as an opportunity to like legitimize the movement and begin making like inroads with like the political elites of Earth and Mars. And Anderson Dawes's character does this really amazing Mark Antony like betrayal, like rhetorically. And like they end up having this like really vigorous debate. The, the show just shows you the yeah. show just shows that like, hey, in this revolutionary movement, um, the visions people are pursuing are wildly divergent, like their their goals align to take the first step and open up possibility. And after that, where they want that possibility to go goes in a million different directions. That was what made the expanse so interesting. Yeah. Marco kind of ends all that, all that, and you don't even see the debates resolved. Like, I think in this season, they're like, oh, and by the way, he killed Anderson Dawes off screen. Right. And like, <laughs> he did? Okay. I guess, I guess we couldn't get couldn't Jerry get Harris, Harris back. Yeah, couldn't get Harris back. Uh, uh, and so, like, that, yeah, so that stuff is a little bit frustrating. That, like, I think you get the politics get a little bit flattened, yeah. and then you get, like, kind of a, Ooh, but what if too much revolution, huh? <laughs> huh? Like, and I'm, and I'm not sure as a like I'm not sure as a real divergence from the show, but it is a from the from the books. But it is like it's 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 hard not to see, um, and sort of mourn the fact that like the different ideologies they so like they were setting up in the earlier parts of the the show's run. By the end, it's just like. And this guy's just like a completely off the chain terrorist yep. and they got to put him down. Everyone needs to work together. Uh, the politics on Earth and Mars are going to align. And now it's like team good guy and team bad guy. It's, um, um, it's a little weird, too, because. I don't know, there are ways that people refer to Marco and Aris in this in this season that. Feels like someone knows someone knows on the other end that we've ended up at like the the like kind of most extremes of like these things have to be tied together like the most militant has to be the most evil uh things like that um and like i kind of like i felt it's weird i feel like marcos as a character 
kind of fell flat for me, but the way that the other characters kind of react to him still start still felt in line with what they've been building. Like they can't kind of break that momentum from those earlier seasons, but Marco himself is that break kind of the way that he's been characterized. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and he has such divergence from other stuff in the show uh, that like, he does feel like he's just almost, there are moments where it feels like he parachuted in from a different show. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> like, yeah, totally. There are moments, like they keep me like he. The key thing is he is the ex of one of the major characters, Naomi Nagata, who uh-huh. mean the first episode, and it's one of those things you keep coming back to, and it's like I don't even know that I believe that you guys ever inherit inhabited like the same <laughs> universe. Like I just, I, like I'm trying, I just, I don't see it. Um, Look, we all make mistakes when we're when we're young. You know, Naomi yeah. just <laughs> everyone uh, has that but, that guy that that ex that you regret. <laughs> but I, I do have to say, like, I I think this is a show that every season I'm like a little bit like I agreed with trepidation because I was like, are they going to lose the plot here? Are mm-hmm. they going to lose control of this thing? Um, doesn't feel like it uh, so far in season six. And like again, you know, they did one where. The entire season was a really tense, like what on earth is happening in a distant, like, uh, you know, interstellar outpost uh, type thing that is that was really intense and cool. Mm -hmm. And like that totally worked. Um, The attack on Earth with the asteroids and dealing with like the literal fallout from that was an incredible season. Like they keep like changing the stakes and keep changing what the show is. Yeah. And at each each turn, I think something they capture really well is it's disorienting. But if you think about it, it also logically follows. Like you, you do realize, like you know, there's a season where it is shocking the speed at which Mars, which is this like super militarist, highly regimented, collectivized society, the minute that is no longer required for their survival, it is shocking the rate at which that ideology disintegrates and Mars itself, like completely changes um yeah and it feels it feels earned it happens very fast but actually it's like it's very kind of smart that like you know you remove those pressures that society would change overnight um and this show like plays with those ideas like you know in star trek the klingons are always kind of the klingons in some ways in this it's like the minute politics change the players change yeah Totally. It's it's very deft at at weaving its its plot lines. And like it yeah, like like you said, it always feels earned. It feels like by doing very intensive and like um uh uh complete world building, the 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 twists uh can be surprising without feeling like they're breaking some sort of logic, right? Like as as quickly yeah. as they come. Yeah. Uh, so we're gonna take a quick break here, and then you know, all this talk about plotting and how things fit together. <laughs> I guess that I guess that perfectly sets us up for a conversation about yellow jackets. Uh, so we'll be back after the break. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right, Patrick, so you've been burning to talk about Yellow Jackets. Uh, I canceled my Showtime subscription last year, unfortunately. <laughs> so I am late to this. Tell me about tell me of the Yellow Rob, Jackets. Rob, I, I, I can solve this for you. Like li- quite literally today, you should have gotten an email related to the screeners that we get because of the union we're in. That will give you a link that will let you watch all of the Yellow Probably Jackets. Probably in standard episodes, depth, if though. You want. No, no, definitely not. Nope, 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 nope. You, you'll be good. Um, oh, really? Oh, wow. okay. Uh, that stuff. That stuff has come a long way. Um, okay. From from getting DVD discs. Uh, has so it? My, my guess is you. Yeah. My mailbox oh, was I watched, full of DVDs this this winter. It well, is, that's but still also, happening too. You, yeah. But you also got emails with apps to set up. Are you I serious? watched all like Nightmare Alley, all that stuff <laughs> with like what? Yeah, hundred percent. You were reading the emails, Kato. <laughs> no, I've been, I watched Nightmare Alley and SD with those watermarks on it. <laughs> uh, no, there was there was an associated app um, that that went alongside God that that I was able it. to watch all those. Anyway, that is not that remotely applicable. Get in a union, and then you too might be represented by the Writers Guild and not vote in an awards thing that you because you don't know anything about it, but then can watch the movies at home. Oh, I'm uh, voting with your that. with your name plastered. Across, uh, it, so when you have guests over, which obviously you would never do, you would never show any of those films to anyone else. But if you did, uh, it would have your name across it, and it would seem <laughs> a little bit odd. Anyway, uh, yeah, Yellow Jackets is uh, a show on uh, Showtime, the Dexter Network. Uh, in that is that is basically uh, Laura. I really like Dexter when it started. Season three was a peak, and then uh, so I'm not going to watch that new one out of protest. Uh, it, it, yeah, you described it at the top as sort of like Lord of the Flies uh, with a bunch of uh, teenage girls. The The premise is uh, that there's a, a, a soccer team called the Yellow Jackets. Uh, they are positioned as sort of most for a lot of people, probably when in high school, the team that the school gave a shit about was the football team. Like, or at least that's how it was always in the Midwest. Like, it's really like, oh, isn't it isn't it nice that like some of the other teams are like good or like got, you know, went to, you know, nationals, but like it was always the football team that you went to the like pep rally for. And in this universe, uh, which the, this, it is the nineties, but like in this here, fuck it, the yellow jackets are the shit. They are the football team. Like (laughs) they are like the thing that the school is psyched for. Like they are the pep rally. Um, they are just crushing it. Um, and so they are getting ready to go to nationals, um, which is sort of like, you know, the height of heights for competition um, in uh, high school uh, sports. Um, and uh, they are they're on an airplane, uh, uh, on a, pr- a private jet, like one of the parents of one of the kids is rich and, and allows the, 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 the whole team to use the plane as their uh, vehicle to get to nationals. There's an incident in the air um, that uh, is unclear what occurs, but the plane crashes. Uh, a number of people are killed, but a number of the uh, 
uh, team members of the Yellow Jackets survive. The show is split between two time periods. Um, the time that they are in the woods, um, which takes place. This is said very early on. It's, it's a very minor spoiler, but they're out there for 18 months. Um, uh, then uh, the show also takes place across uh, the present timeline with um, a set number of people that have survived the ordeal in the woods uh, and what is the uh, so like lifelong trauma that occurs as a, as a result. Um, I mean, the opening scene of this show is uh, quite literally uh, a person, a bunch of teenagers in cult gear wearing animal skins, cutting open another teenager clearly to get ready to consume them. Um, and uh, the, then that's cross cut with like, what, it, what was it like to, what is it like to go through <laughs> a horrifying trauma and what would that bring with you for the rest of your life? And so like, that's kind of the setup of, of Yellow Jackets as a show. What I thought was interesting to talk about today was less the specifics of why I think the show is a work of genius, which I, which I do, um, but is like recently uh, Kato had mentioned he had finished watching season one of Lost. <laughs> um, Rob had a, a derisive remark that he made as we like had that discussion, like uh, uh, before uh, a podcast. And, and the stage I wanted to set for this show is that it is, it comes so many years after they debut of Lost, a show about mystery and characters in which the tension between those two things um, led to a lot of consultation, or a lot of like irritation on, on, on parts of certain parts of the audience. It also inspired a bajillion ripoff shows, which was like, ah, what we need is a high concept mystery show that's going to stretch over 10 seasons and we're going to answer a bunch of questions. And then they all get canceled in the first season because they weren't interesting or worth watching um, or didn't take the right lessons of loss. And I think Yellow Jackets takes is in the post lost era, the show that I think most successfully understands what made lost a fundamentally interesting show in the first place um, and takes all of the right lessons from what worked there and what didn't and then applies it into, you know, a new a new story. Um, and so. Kind of, I'm curious where, where, how you have fought, where, so have you only just finished the first season of Lost? Yeah. 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 Yep. And have you watched it before or is this, you're doing, you're doing this for the first, first time. time? First time ever. Didn't know shit about anything. Uh, why, why does a, why does a person <laughs> watch, and this comes from Lost all time favorite show. We'll, I will sit here and uh, cut you to pieces over how you misinterpreted the finale. Um, <laughs> but I, I, it is interesting in an era where, uh, shows are like eight to 10 episodes long in a season. It's like, damn, that's so much. And like Lost is like, no, actually, what if you like had to watch 24 episodes in a season? Because that's how they used to make <laughs> television shows. Um, I mean, it mostly ended up, it ended up happening because a discussion happened in a Discord that I'm in where me and mostly a couple other people were like, we've never seen it. And then enough people on that Discord were like, holy shit, what? we have to watch it and we have to watch it together that it just became okay. a thing right. that we're That's regularly good. doing, like watching two to three episodes every week going through lost. Um, and it's a, it's what a split, your, what, okay. it's a split of like half the people have never seen it and half mm -hmm. the people have seen it and are like talking to themselves in a different like area with spoiler tags on. So we don't see anything. What is it? What is, I, I guess I'd ask the both of you, uh, 
what is your impression of lost as a show? Um, like either personally or just what you take from the cultural conversation. Um, cause I, I get the impression that Rob only knows the memes from cultural osmosis, but <laughs> didn't actually watch the show. To me, just based on the cultural osmosis and what I've seen of the, this first season, I feel like they really wanted to do certain types of character studies and string it together with twists that will never have answers. Like maybe some of these things get answered, but so they dump so much in this first season that feels like maybe they would have answered one of these things by now if it were the only thing that the show was focusing on. But really what the show is focusing on is these characters what their like their lives up to leading them to getting on the lost plane and um how they have accidentally interacted before the lost plane and whether or not that has any meaning to it i think is going to be about them and their interactions less like here's what is happening in this world like i don't think we're going to get good or satisfying answers as far as like what is happening. It's more like watch these people. Let's talk deal when with you finish trauma. the show. I have, I, have very, a multi, like, I have a multitude of opinions on what that is, yeah. but, I, but I do think part of what you're hitting on, try to keep this at your core Kyle, yeah. as like the mystery engine continues to go off right. in that show, which is that I think at its core lost is a show about characters. Yeah. This is what I'm you saying. Can get distract, yeah. You can get distracted by the mystery and it's understandable to get distracted by the mystery because the show is constantly going. Mystery. mystery. It feels. But at the end of the day, yeah. at the end of the day, like, and again, it, there's like no spoilers for where it goes. But like, I think the show <laughs> lands the plane on <laughs> on the characters. Yeah. No. It feels like and, and sort of and sort of beca- and like does kind of messily sort of goes like and sorry, but like <laughs> if if what you were there for is like where does the character Jack and everything that, yeah. you know, orbits, orbits him. That's like, what I, I think yeah. the show, it feels like they're na- na- nails, nails that part. They're smuggling, uh, interesting character work under like the guise of, you have to tune in to find out what happens. But yeah. what, yes. what you end up yes. finding out is more about these characters. And like, maybe that was just a thing that TV had to sell in this different way for people to be hype about it. But like, it feels definitely like well, they kind of stumbled. Yeah. They kind of stumbled into it. I, I think like 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 it's it's. I mean, the history of Lost is like interesting to read, like especially because like the character of Jack was supposed to be stunt casted as Michael Keaton because they were gonna kill him off in the first ten minutes ah. during oh. the <laughs> plane crash, and that was going to be one of the gimmicks huh. that got you in the show. And then the, uh, because Michael Keaton didn't want to uh, uh, commit to doing a television show. But if they, then there'd be a lot of articles written about, damn, Michael Keaton's doing a TV show. And then that's how they would get you kind of like into the show. But then they wanted Jack to be a more central character. And so they they cast the uh, Party of Five uh, was the show that that dude was huh. like largely known for before. Um, anyway, like how this connects to, to Yellow Jackets is um, it is like, yeah, like the high concept is like Lord of the Flies, implications of cannibalism, um, like hyperviolence. Uh, but it's really a show about these characters, trauma, what does it mean to have it, like you're supposed to have it together and be a normal ass person that is well adjusted when you're in your forties and fifties. And it turns out like the life you have lived and everything that has come before it is going to continue fucking you up. And your entire life is like presenting as normal, 
and just pretending that you like haven't been affected by the events that have come before you. And this is like an exaggerated version of that. Not everyone's trauma is crashed landing and having to survive 18 months in the wilderness and possibly eating your friends. But like in life, we all have like our equivalents of things that are like life defining events that shape what we do going forward that we may claim to be beyond or like like suppress or work around or even recognize and like, you know, go to, you know, therapy and like work through, but it still defines you. And this like show uses in the same way that lost used high, a high concept premise to kind of like drag you in. But whereas lost frequently, because it was sort of piloting this notion of like balancing these two things frequently lost the plot on on how what it was like the shiny object and the characters <laughs> and like frequently in, in yellow jackets they seem to understand well we we're gonna have a lot of shiny objects up front and then the rest of it's really gonna be about the characters um and we're just gonna double down on that and the show is gonna live or die by the performances and the arcs that we're gonna give these characters out here and there'll still be another shiny object there are like hints of supernatural in uh in Yellow Jackets, but I, part of what I think is so compelling about it is that I, and maybe this is part of just like having watched a lot of these shows, having watched Lost, where like I can approach it differently. But I do think it's, I think it is fundamentally in the show's DNA and scripting that it understands, uh, you can use that as the shiny object, but like if people don't care about the characters, you're, the answers, the answers can be unsatisfying as long as you care about the characters along the way. And I think they've, they're, they're successfully, tipping the scale in a certain direction where, you know, they've claimed they have a five season arc that they have planned, but like, how can you truly know what like five seasons are going to be before you write that stuff and how audiences react and yada, yada. Um, but I, I just, the characters in the show are so wonderful that I sort of don't care what their answers are to other things. And I, the, th- the, w- the way I would like kind of broaden this out more generally would be, I want to read this, uh, quote from an article in The Ringer called What Really Happened Out There by uh, Jacqueline Cantor uh, over at The Ringer. Um, says, uh, so the quote here is, uh, online fan discussion of a drama's uh, twists and turns is not new. The Westworld and Game of Thrones subreddits have 1 million and 2.9 million uh, members respectively. But until recently, shows in the Reddit communities have been in conflict. At times, predictions and theories were so off the wall and enjoyable to parse that the real plot lines ended up paling in comparison. Other times, creators were forced to adjust episodes after Reddit figured out the twist long before the actual reveals. Some shows have outright feuded with their fandoms. Quote, we love to fuck with Reddit as much as possible, joked Westworld co-creator Jonathan Nolan in 2018. Only in the past year or so have the showrunners begun to accept that Reddit sleuthing is inevitable if audiences are given a mystery box. By playing along with their fans, Yellow Jackets has taken it a step further. That is pointed out in the article earlier why how uh, some of the actors have been like showing up on the Reddit and like commenting and like poking fun at the audience and, and, and kind of uh, going along with them. Uh, filming had complete, finished completely by the time of the premiere, which eliminated any chance for, quote, meta-commentary in the show about online theories. The nods to potential theory communities, one episode of Yellow Jackets features a clip of a Yellow Jackets Reddit, uh, and the cast embraced the subreddit, also weren't developed in hopes of sparking an online community. It was very much organic, uh, and quoting one of the co-creators of Yellow Jackets, uh, we were all just genuinely fascinated and entertained. And the the reason I bring this up is twofold is one is the notion of sort of like how online communities, I think have like as much as they're fun to be a part of have like really fucked up like screenwriting, especially in television by being so reactionary to what fan communities want. And then two is how much I guess either of you enjoy that part of like watching a show as it's going, participating either actively or passively 
in the discourse, or if you enjoy just coming to it later, you can just enjoy it as a product, as a finished thing, good or bad. Uh, like Rob, I'm like so much less tuned into like what your watching habits are uh, that I'm curious where you fall on that spectrum with the like the shows that you watch. Yeah, I tend to uh, like I I'll, I'll read interesting recaps or like I'm really like curious what the current theory about something that really is really perplexing is. I will I will seek it out. But there's kind of two things. One is that. Um, I do know that a lot of times these communities will lies puzzles are not hard to figure out ultimately, you know what I mean? And like to an extent, I am certain that if I read enough theories, I will encounter like the, the solution to the mystery, uh, <laughs> just from the sheer amount of like brute forcing happening there. Or someone will guess it and then retroactively it's correct <clears throat> where it's like, a th- if you read a theory, even if it's just a theory, if the theory is correct, in some ways, they've solved the puzzle, even if they didn't know they they, they had done it, which is uh, a, a way a lot of these these communities end up working. Right. And like, and I think I do have the awareness that sometimes this stuff does filter its way into the product because like showrunners do start reacting to this stuff and start uh, like having a. The relationship go a number of different ways, as you alluded to, but like they have a relationship to the fan theory. Uh, community and I tend not to like I, I think this is kind of like one of my issues is that in general I like I love a good mysterious vibe around a show like the the aura of mystery very important the mystery itself less so right uh, but I think like one of the reasons that I started to like stay away from Lost was that it did um, so I had gone through Alias um, you know, JJ ah, Abrams spy show. Sure. Yeah. I've heard that fa- famously the mythology on that show got fucking out of control. Right. Um, because repeatedly it's, it's just like JJ Abrams and his creative team kind of like spinning up new mysteries that are ever less satisfying because like they can't sustain their conceits for very long. Uh, and so you end up with like, you know, in a, in alias world, um, the central animating stuff was uh, this this like Renaissance monk uh, Rimbaldi and the Rimbaldi right. devices, and this stuff was like the shit that justified like action for season after season after season. And I started to see some of those fingerprints on Lost as well, where it's like, uh, no, 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 no. This is this is this is just the Rimbaldi device, but like different. But like I bend down this road, right? Like I've I have climbed down that hatch in a different show, <laughs> and there was nothing good at the bottom. And frequently, it's like, well, we had to put something at the bottom. It sucks. And so there we are. Like that was that was often how Alias started to feel. Uh, whereas what was most like my favorite parts of season one was the sheer amount of like, what the fuck is happening here? Like the smoke monster, right? Yeah. Like one of the most terrifying and mysterious and completely like contradictory things that I've ever seen on TV, right? Like, was it an animal? Was it a machine? Uh, just like all this shit. Why does it sound like a New York tacky, uh, New York taxi, uh, like ticketing, which I think is where the primary sound effect comes from on the smoke monster Very is funny. like a New York, an old New York taxi. Uh, but <laughs> like it's inc- ticket sound. It's incredible stuff. And the end, like yeah. the, the thing is, it's like I don't know that I need. Like I am certain that once they're like, 
here's what the smoke monster is. I'll be like, oh, fuck. Really? That's yeah. what it is. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say it's one of the more le- one of the one of the least one of the less satisfying. An- there is an answer. There is an answer. Oh no, they <laughs> answer the that less- one. Shit. Kato, Kato. Uh, here's what I'll say. Like, I lost haters will uh, att- attempt to refute this, huh. but there are answers genuinely to just about everything you would want to oh, ask. Interesting. The reason they get mad is because well, they're just unhappy with what the answers the answer, are, which. That, <laughs> And, 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 you know, that, that I can sort of like take or leave depending on like what we're talking Ask about. Stupid um, questions, think, get stupid answers. <laughs> right. Um, and, and, but they, I, all of the big stuff that you were like, uh, well, I wonder how X, like they get there. Like they, they get to, they get to a point that, and loss was fascinating because they, um, you know, they were basically like the show's a creative, uh, like lull occurs in the beginning of season three. Because ABC was basically like, this shit is money. We're just going to make this show forever. And the showrunners, like J.J. Abrams was involved in the pilot and then bounced. So he was like, he was doing like the Mission Impossible movies and Star Trek. And like, so he he was there in the beginning and then moved on. Um, but uh, the, the, the I was going to say, he uh, left his indelible mark on the opening to Lost, which apparently he made on a Mac computer at some point or like. In Windows, yeah, yeah the little look, the little like wow. When you when you there's a, a there's yeah. a fucking frame in there where if you pause it just at the right time, there's a hole in the S. There's a fucked up S. Yeah. And for some reason, the people that I'm watching it with are gonna pause it on that frame every single time we watch an episode. It's horrible. There's just jaggies uh, everywhere. I think <laughs> they've talked about it. And they were like, it just became part of the aesthetic. Yeah. They're like, no, we refuse to, to change it. Um, <laughs> uh but they like the beginning of season three where the show is really just like spinning its wheels because it's just like, how are we going to do this for 24 episodes every year? Um, how do you build towards an end game? And they like basically force ABC's hand to like, hey, make three more seasons and you can be done. And they cut the episode count down significantly. And there's like specifically a scene. You'll get there. There's just it involves a bus. That's all I'll say. And like, you'll know when you get to the bus scene and it's like, it's actually in that, that's almost like a response to the writers being like, yay, like we can actually steer a show towards an end point. <laughs> like whether you feel good about where, where you get there is, is, you know, uh, a different story. But um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a, it's fascinating to have as much as I liked lost. I basically stopped. I didn't really watch like any, I didn't feel, uh, a sense, a desire after Lost to then watch a bunch of shows that were trying to chase what it was trying to do. I thought like Lost was a once in a, you know, it was its own thing. And then I didn't need another high concept show with a bunch of mysteries. And actually the show that most affected me after Lost was the show that Damon Lindelof, one of the co-creators of Lost did, which was The Leftovers, which is probably my second favorite show of all time, because it's essentially the anti-Lost. Like it is written from the start as being like, hey, here's a high concept, uh, you know, a premise of the rapture occurred or a rapture like event. Um, and the show communicates early on. We are never going to tell you what happened. You are never going to get answers to this because it's supposed to be in a, a way of like, you know, uh, I've, I've compared it to like, uh, like when my dad had a heart attack, which is like, there's no answer to that, man. Like shit just happened. And then your life just moves on. And the show, it's like, shit just happened. And then life moves on. Like, whoops, like half the population disappeared. Like, you still got to wake up the next morning and figure out what you do with your life. And the, the ending of The Leftovers is singularly like one of the best like hours of television I've, I have ever watched, primarily because somehow it manages to provide you with an answer that is a non-answer 
in a way that feels like it's Lindelof creatively and personally responding to like the burnout of Lost and trying to like keep up with what people wanted from that show. If, if you ever get through that, you should absolutely watch The Leftovers because it's like a fascinating counter creatively to that show um, that I found equally satisfying. So there's there's two things just because I, I enjoy this moment so much. And I just want to like I do want to say season mm-hmm. one of Lost, the chemistry teacher lecturing them about the oh my God. dynamite <laughs> is one of the funniest beats. Like just one of the most stunning moments of that entire season. Like the the polar God. bear pales by comparison God. to when he gestures with the dynamite. Christ. Yes. <laughs> he's, uh, in that, he's, in, he's in there for like three episodes. It's like, oh, why is the mm-hmm. kerchief guy back? It's like, and he's this guy calling has out the fact that like, the primary characters are always off doing their own thing yeah. and like no one gives a shit about yeah. guys like him. It's very it's, funny. It's amazing. Oh. Um, but the other, the other thing I wanted to talk a little bit about is I think, I think something else that I'm hoping this like structure ends up helping yellow jackets um, is that so with Lost, at least the parts I've seen so much of it is about the past. These are characters dealing with their past and like that, you know, Lost itself is like kind of their all these characters are to some extent in their own limbo uh, trying to resolve things about their past. But a lot of like the key formative events for them are now done. And a lot of their backstories is like, how how did they go wrong to become the person we now know on on this island? It was interesting in Yellow Jackets is that it's about to your point earlier, Patrick, but like there's some things that just started like really influencing or defining you moving forward or how in, um, you know, the, uh, uh, the leftovers, um, you know, it's about like carrying, it's about carrying forward after, after such an event. I think yellow jackets was interesting is that every, like ultimately we're positioned with the adults who've been marked by these events and right. the horror and like the really eerie part of this is all flashback, but like a lot of the tension, the mystery is like, oh, what did happen? But a lot of the tension is like, what does all this signify for these characters today? Right? That all these characters are, as this is being resurfaced, it is forcing new crossroads uh, on them. And when it, it it also it um, you know, we've talked about, I don't know if we talked about it on the podcast, but like the. Like when you talk about the the notion of spoilers, it was like it, when you if you know something, does the anticipation of noise going to happen, but not knowing how you get there? Um, can that be more exciting than the surprise? And I think to your point, what's interesting about Yellow Jackets as a narrative structure is it removes one of the original like, how is this? What's how does this resolve? It's like, oh, they get they, they get out or at least some of them do um, like they they go on, they get rescued or find a way out, you know, it's, it's unclear exactly how that resolves, but they like immediately take that off the table, which is like, you know, some of them go on to live their lives with the, the knowledge of what occurred, um, in those woods. Um, but that only adds, even though it's, you know, it's the show itself, so it can't spoil itself, but like it then creates more tension because you just want to know, well, how the fuck did we get to that point? Because every time you see an expression of trauma, in their adult lives, you can tell that it's rooted in an event that occurred in the past. So that as soon as you get head back to there, all you're doing is wondering, well, then how, how did we get to there? Cause it's clearly not present in the character as we know it in the like 
in the in the past version of the events and you're just then excited to see how you get to that point it's just a really fascinating way to do storytelling because it's often there are flashbacks even you know lost is structured around flashbacks but where that's like all kind of all over the place where it's like they can pick and choose where the flashback is occurring and tell a particular story like this is just two timelines that are occurring occurring concurrently um and they've just chosen that like well we're gonna map the consequences of one of the timelines to this one and it's like so many years i mean it's like you know it's like 30 40 years later like after these events and of course i have to mention it's got incredible like not like uh, every 90s crush is here christina ricci is here like juliet lewis is here <laughs> like there are just like multiple women like now uh you know in in middle age who you had a crush on at some point in uh the 90s uh here just uh being completely uh, unhinged so um I want to make sure we have time for your topic, uh, Rob, but I will just uh, close with being uh, effusive in my praise for, for Yellow Jackets. I, I think I think people should definitely check it out. And you can get the sense that it's starting to get away from them over the course of this first season that like. I think that never happens this early. Yeah. Right. You know, I season think one of Lost is basically immaculate. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I think a lot of I, I think the, uh, I, you know, I can go on, and on about Lost. I, I, th- I think like the answer to the central mystery at the, the end of season one is answered the opening minutes of season two are also like a fucking all timer, like in like screaming off the rooftops being like, I cannot believe what I am <laughs> watching. Um, very excited for yeah. um, when you get there. Please tell me when you are going to watch it. Uh, Akato. Um, there, Thursday. There's We've a set the there's date. A, there's Thursday. A, we're starting season yeah. two. I'm excited. <laughs> when you hear a vinyl, could you just let me know? Kato is, sure. is all I will say. Um, and, um, uh, I don't think for these mystery shows in a season one, especially when it's only eight to 10 episodes long, that's actually not a lot of time to fill. And so I think where these shows go off the rails are once you lose, eventually you lose, you know, the uh, momentum of, of a, of a high concept premise and you have to keep it going. And like, so I think the next season is where you'll get a better picture of, can they keep, can they keep this going? Do they have answers that'll be satisfying? But I, I guess I would also say as my concluding point, um, part of the why it's more fun to watch it in the moment because you can almost sort of, it's it doesn't affect you as much if you're like in the, the hype of it as it's occurring as much as like watching it. Like I'm so curious how things land for Kato, like watching <laughs> Lost as a cultural artifact where you can just binge it as opposed to, there used to be a website called we, Is There a New Lost Episode.com because sometimes <laughs> Lost would go, it would air like in two episodes and then go off for six weeks. Jesus. Like, I, I don't, is there even an episode what? on tomorrow? Be, because <laughs> Lost was such a huge moneymaker for yeah. them. They would just position episodes up against like, it, it was a it was a weird show at a weird, weird, at a weird time. Weird. I think that's part of the reason like some of the people who have seen it have kind of uh, suggested that we do max three episodes a week. We're like taking it slow, letting it percolate, percolate between mm-hmm. watchings, you know, kind of trying to rebuild some of that, like, you know, that space between getting new chunks of information and kind of like thinking through what might've happened and discussing it amongst the people who haven't seen it yet. And, you know, the people who have being mostly quiet and snickering yep. in their corners. <laughs> that would be me. That would be me. me. And I, so I'm not in your discord, but you now need to tell me <laughs> yeah, yeah. your updates so that I can, I can debrief with you. Uh, so yeah, so my waypoints this week, uh, you know, this year I'm really getting after it. I'm really just gonna, 
uh, you know, <laughs> really changing. Become... Rob's changing some <laughs> habits. You know, just a new Rob has appeared, and this Rob loves sports car racing. Oh wait, wait, Rob! Whoa, whoa, wait. Isn't that isn't that old news? No, no. I loved Formula One racing. Mm. I okay. Well, I did like sports car racing in the past, but I'm going to watch more of it this year. <laughs> that's my that's that's my New Year's resolution. Uh, so this weekend I had all kinds of ambitions and instead I just watched tons of the 24 hours of Daytona. That is, uh, you know, obviously an endurance race. It takes place at the Daytona Speedway. Uh, they use the infield track. Have you played, uh, a variety of games, but like it pops up all the time in Forza Motorsport seven, uh, the, the infield track at, at Daytona. Um, and one of the really great things about it is that this is, you know, it's January. They're not racing. There, there are no, like, there are no racing, uh, sport. There are no motorsports that are really actively having seasons right now, (laughs) uh, because it's, it's winter and there aren't like F1 isn't going to start till the spring. Uh, you know, IndyCar isn't starting for a few more weeks. Like, you know, they can, they can operate and like warmer climbs in the southern hemisphere but for the most part like things are going to hold off until uh you know the, the the new year proper but daytona being in florida always sort of kicks things off um and because nothing else is running you get really wide ranging groups of people attending the event uh to compete in it so you'll have like formula 1 drivers ex formula mm. 1 drivers indy car drivers uh like sports car drivers uh, just from all over and they will sort of form teams, uh, you know, with each other kind of at random. Um, And so the whole thing has this like reunion vibe in some ways. And the telecast itself like leans into that. Like the cool thing about watching endurance races is because the races go on forever. um, A lot of it is like, okay, well, you know, this person just did a two hour stint. Now they're going to come and we're going to talk to them and do an interview and sort of catch up and just talk, just talk racing. Uh, and it's, it's really cool. It's a, it's a, it's a fun thing to have on in the background. But the other thing that the major endurance events tend to have is all these like smaller events happening around them. Uh, because even though like, I think four or five different classes of racing happen uh, at the 24 hours of Daytona, Throughout the year, when events like this are happening, usually they are preceded by support, what's called like support races, smaller, like smaller, uh, you know, sports, basically uh, racing at the same venue. F1 does this, too, uh, where like Formula Two is their feeder league. Uh, they tend to follow around uh, Formula There's One. There's a Formula sequel. You just I just I know that's just the fact that I, I make sense. There could be a Formula Two. Right. Never in my life. Have I heard that? The idea that you just casually mentioned and there's a Formula 2 is like. <laughs> oh, there's Formula Ford. Uh, there used to be like form. There used to be like GP2. Well, see, that uh, makes I, I, specifically the fact that it's uh, the idea that it's Formula colon another branding makes all the sense in the world to me. The fact that there's Formula 1 and then just also a Formula 2 is just <laughs> very funny to me. Well, then they have um, this year, I think they're doing W Series, which is uh, like women's open wheel racing. 
uh, and they're trying, like, they're using that as a development, development league uh, hmm. for, like, female talent in motorsports. And I think this might be the first year where one or two women who've had success in there have gotten rides in, like, IndyCar or, uh, like, other, like, endurance races. So that's that's another, like, that's an example of, like, a support race uh, that, that hmm. happens during these weekends. So... One of the things that was like weirdly compelling that I ended up like sharing with you guys uh, was a Mazda MX-5 race that preceded uh, the 24 hours of Daytona, um, which is like the Mazda MX-5, a.k.a. the Miata, is one of the iconic, like affordable sports sports coupes, um, and it is a standby of like entry level racing. And they had like a 45 minute event, uh, like a day or so before the 24 hours at the same track. And I'll be damned if it's not some of the most entertaining racing I've seen like in ages. And part of it is because these cars are so much less powerful than like other, like more advanced race cars Did mm. the, the margin for error and the amount of space they can use on the track is just enormous. A lot and of cars so, spinning out in this in these clips that I'm watching <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah, like they can they can go like so the faster the car basically, the more the racing line matters, where like you really right. only like there's one path that a car can efficiently take around the track. And if you deviate from it, it'll be massively inefficient. Right. The cool thing about sports car racing, and it actually gets more true as you go to less and less powerful cars, is that everything starts to open up more because the car isn't so on the edge that it can't take different approaches to a corner. Uh, and so, like, one of the things well, that must see- be exp- maybe I'm uh, interpreting this correctly, but like, is some of that because essentially, like, everyone's kind of building towards the same thing on the high end. Like, efficiencies are such that, uh, Yes, like you, there, there'll be some creative choices, liberties made, but really, you're all trying to create the same efficiencies because why would you do it differently? Everyone else is doing it this way. But then when you get into like something like this, well, there's less of this here. And, and so by, by nature of that, there's, it kind of like widens the, uh, like availability of choice. Um, um, and decision making. So there's a bit of that. I think that's true of other sports car uh, racing because there you do have different uh, types of cars going up against each other. And like in F1, it is undeniable. It is shocking the degree to which they converge at like performance um, where, you know, they sort of joke about you have all these millions of dollars spent developing these cars and then you will see them go around a track and they all <laughs> lap within a tenth of a second of each other. And they all like took different approaches to get there, but like at the end, they basically turn identical times. Um, I think that's like for folks that don't watch the sport, like myself. If you were just to watch a clip, you'd be like, "Wow, yeah, look at all those cars follow each other." Um, um, When obviously that's like massively, you know, oversimplifying (laughs) a very complicated sport. But but aesthetically, it can look that way. They have to follow each other because like they are so fast that it's sort of like. you know how if you're going around, like, say, an on-ramp to the highway, mm-hmm. if you're going, like, 35 on the looping on-ramp 
and you had to like turn aside and get around something or someone was just like really crawling. You want to pass them. You can just sort of juke out of the way and go around them, like increase speed to 45, get around them. It, no big deal. Um, at the like high end of what these cars do, suddenly there is only one efficient way through that. Like if you try to change angle of attack in that, you are going to fly off the highway. You know, if you're if you're approaching that same turn in a car that like if you hit the angle right, it will be glued through that corner at like 120 miles an hour. And you can do that. But if you're like, oh, but now I want to adjust my angle and like, can I like take this a little wider, go to the left? Can I get in a little early to go to the right? You can't do it. You will wipe the car out or you will have to like lose so much speed uh, that it's wildly inefficient. That's where high end cars tend to end up. Whereas like the Miata is a lot, a, mo- a lot more like the little car you'd be driving up that interchange. And so <laughs> these guys can sort of be like, yeah, I got a pretty good run on this guy and I'm just going to try this move. Uh, because for me in my little car, this corner is enormous. I have tons of options here. There's four different ways to approach this corner. In the highest end, like endurance cars, there's like one way to approach the corner. Right. And so like you see this, this MX five race and they are constantly like wheel to wheel or even nose to tail. Mm-hmm. Like you watch this and they are not shy at all about like bumping into each other, you know, uh, you know, rubbing fenders. Um, the, the, body that governs the sport even tried to tell them like hey stop ramming each other on the straights (laughs) oh my god um and they were just like no (laughs) and so they just (laughs) kept doing it um and so like they and and they kind of they kind of let that go but like that's how intense the racing gets is these these cars will get like literally um they will like form a train on the on the track and they will be bumper to bumper uh, as they all like sort of draft up on each other. And then when someone gets enough head of steam, they'll cut out and try to get around. So what you're um, saying is that my driver's car was just training for this Mazda MX-5 cup. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was mm-hmm. kind of like th- watching this. I was like, this is the level of motorsport that is most like what we play on our like, right. video game consoles right. where it's like, oh yeah, these, these people do the same shit. Like they will <laughs> just be like, I'm not, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to use you as a wall to keep me on the track. Uh, I want to race like, like a dirt bag. Thank you. <laughs> they kind of do that stuff. Um, and it's really fun. Whereas mm. like in Formula One, you can't do that. The right. cars can't even, the cars are so aerodynamically sensitive. They can't even get that close to each other very right. easily. In these, in the humble, in the humble sports car. Um, they're much less aerodynamically sensitive. And so they can lap after lap be within a few inches of each other. And like being in all that turbulence doesn't completely wreck what they can, what they can do. Um, the other thing I sort of, I, I sort of cited here, we ended up covering this over on shift F1, uh, this month, but I, I thought I'd bring it to your attention. If you're like, I don't really get the racing. I don't want to go all in on that. Michael Fassbender did a thing with Porsche where he like, <laughs> is genuinely fully trying to be a race car driver. Yeah, I didn't like well, I know you 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 linked like <laughs> two videos like do you want to watch this 40 minute video and I was like, well maybe I can do that over lunch. And then I clicked on I saw like 
what the fuck you mean? The the, the Assassin's Creed actor, uh, Michael Fassbender, uh, <laughs> the guy try the robot trying to have sex with himself, an alien covenant. Michael Fassbender is out here trying to learn how to race, and then just watched two episodes of that. I was like, oh, this is like way more compelling to me personally. He is. So this is like this ends up being an amazing documentary. The first season, it's like all focused on him and it's like really Porsche branding. And it's like, what an incredible opportunity. And like, but you start to get the sense in the first season, like, is he not good? Is he not very good at this? The answer is he's not because he's coming to it late in life and he's like learning. And then the second season, they're like, we need to accelerate your development. So even though you didn't master the lower tier of racing you were doing last year, you are now going to a considerably more challenging level in a more like advanced car. And well, then the, the season starts with being like, look, if we're, if we're not going to Le Mans, then what's the fucking point? So let's aim for that. And it's like, whoa, that's like, like okay. <laughs> like, I think Fastbender might, might be okay if he just like proved he was able to, to, to pilot a, a race car just fine. But no, like we need to go to Le Mans. <laughs> and then by the, by the third season, the whole team ends up being kind of the focus as they're like, hey, we could actually be a good team. And when they realize that, now the pressure begins to get on and it becomes like, the thing that showcases is like one of the things that's kind of compelling about endurance racing is that the endurance angle is real. Like it doesn't let up conditions go to shit. They will keep racing. Mm -hmm. If you like, do not feel like if you're like, guys, I am just, I am sucking today. They're like too bad. You have to drive for two more hours. Like there's no, there's no getting out of this. You just have to do this. It's like, it's like being a pitcher where like there's no one left in the bullpen. That's kind of endurance racing at times. Like where it's sorry, I don't care like how you're doing or how badly this is going. You just have to wear this and grind through it. And then it's one of the other compelling parts of this is like an F1 race. For one thing, all the people there are such high achieving drivers that like they're preternaturally good at this right watching fastbender who's a little more like the type of guys you do see racing sports cars they're much more like if you ever ever wondered like what would it be like if someone like me tried to do this mm -hmm. that documentary kind of shows you and like sports Wait, car like, racing what, what would you that. do if you had a support like if you had everything around you like how much could they elevate the floor of what you are capable of doing, right. which is like a really interesting thought experiment because you could probably go reasonably far given the efficiencies that high, like high end athleticism sports like have to operate at that. If you were just to put, give someone a, a competent level of knowledge, like you could probably get su surprisingly far and maybe not be obviously not elite, but you might be, a, I was I, my guess is that where this show goes is like it's shocking how far you could get. Yes, but they that's part of it. I would say that's high high, high floor, low ceiling is what I'm guessing that's, is what. So the is, thing is, it is also here's why maybe you don't want to know that <laughs> because once you realize once you hit your ceiling, yeah, now you live there. And it may not be good enough for this to ever feel comfortable. Like, and now you're just in this, and it's like, like it's it's like if you're someone who just barely makes the roster in football every year, right? Where you're good enough to be out there. You're good enough to eat shit again and again and again. Well, it's like when, when we talk, when you talk about um, 
you know, like we went through this with like a Mitch Trubisky on the Bears. We're like, Mitch Trubisky is one of the greatest athletes on the planet. And he sucks ass. <laughs> yep. Which is like, you can be good enough. You are superhuman uh, to get to the point where you can make it to the NFL and then be a laughing stock when you get to that level because uh, you're not good enough to actually compete on on that tier of of athletics. And that's just a really amazing like thing to realize because we talk the way we talk about people who are bad at a certain thing, like but then forgets, well, they're still better than so many other people, but it we don't we don't think about it in those terms. Well, and so this is the the last thing I'll say about uh, some of these sports car tiers as well is that because they put multiple classes on the track at the same time, you will have fully professionalized team with like elite drivers like stacked up. Like, you know, every single guy getting that car is just an ace. But then in the lower tiers, like the pro-am tiers, you'll have like, and, and literally this is where Fastbender ends up. Part of the rules are that team is allowed one like pro driver, one journeyman driver, and one like kind of beginner level driver. And they all have to race. Like you can't like just say I'm going to play my ringer. They all have to get in there. And so the other thing that makes like this really terrifying, but like really compelling as a as a thing to watch is that you don't know. <laughs> like these guys are sometimes racing and they don't know who's in the other car. Like are these guys racing their pro or is this the, is this the person who sucks? Is this the amateur? And it's, and more than that, is this a good amateur or is this someone who doesn't know what they're doing? Like a thing that happens mm-hmm. repeatedly is even as Fassbender starts getting good, you start seeing his confidence get shattered because you see people around him do really bad things, like really like boneheaded moves. And so through no fault of his own, he ends up like wrecking his car. But like, he can't believe that. Like, he's like, no, I fucked up. He comes back to the garage and it's like, I fucked up. I'm sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. And they try and tell him, no, a guy in a massively faster car got in front of you and then threw on his brakes because he was scared and panicking and you hit him. But that's not supposed to happen. That's on him. But like, that's what is happening on an endurance track is like you will have these mixes and matches of like people who do this for a job and like they're aces. And you will have people who are like, I got a lot of money and tons of enthusiasm and time. (laughs) And here I am. And like, I'm kind of here for it. Like compared to how like tight F1 is like everything Mm. there is buttoned up to the max. You go to sports car racing and like not only are the cars maybe a little more competitive and can like sort of jostle it against each other a little bit more, but like the drivers themselves is such a like the scatter plot of their abilities is so much wider that it becomes fascinating because sometimes you'll just see like you drop a you drop a shark into the into the tank of like chum and you just watch them trash everyone but then eventually that shark's got to get out of the car and then you see like oh what's a guy like michael fassbender able to do in a car like this <laughs> the answer varies week to week but uh, so that's 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 what sort of brought me to my to my year of motorsport, uh, to my year of sports car racing, uh, and I'm excited for it. I, it was a wonderful way to spend a spend a blizzard day, um, and I'm looking forward to lots more endurance racing moving forward. Probably not going right, to tell you guys you about got, it every you guys time. Got a sh- you guys just got a shitload of snow, didn't you? Oh yeah, yeah, we got like 20 inches. Ooh, horrible. Too much I snow. Like. Beautiful. <laughs> 
Rob, Perfect. I was going to say, yeah, Rob couldn't be happier. No, oh, I was thrilled. It was like you don't best car, dad had right? months. I own a car. You own a car? Of course I own a car. It's fucking horrible, then. You dig that shit out out of under 20 feet of 20 million? He doesn't need no. to use the car. You <laughs> so just wait for I that snow yeah. In the in the winter where Boston got hit by like half a dozen like actual blizzards, I did leave a car in a snowdrift for three months because I was like, I'm not no. <laughs> like I'm not I'm not digging out this yeah. car uh-huh. so that someone can take my spot and then gets and then another blizzard gets I'm not doing it. So I just left it. And I was like, I wonder what's gonna be left once that snow melts. Yeah. The answer was a perfectly pristine car that started on the first try. It was great. Well, the fa- um, the, I always find it fascinating when, when I lived in Chicago, where I'd see people do that, and then you'd have like the cycles where the snow melts just enough to get uh, icy, oh. and then and then um, uh, freeze again overnight. And so you'd have car like some of the cars, depending on like how much sun they got, would like get free and clear of this snow. But then you'd have the people who would clearly just or were doing the Rob thing of just abandoning the car for a period of time <laughs> until they wanted to deal with it again. And there was one that I w- went up to and it was just an ice sculpture. Like it had just <laughs> been encased in ice. It's like, well, they're fucked. They have now they truly have to, yeah. unless they're going to go out, I guess you could go out there with like a, a blow dryer or something and like try and get your way through. But I think if you were trying to actually break that ice, you might, you know, put yourself in danger. Of no, you just, the, you just have to wait. You yep. just have to await the season. Uh, the season of the car, I, uh, uh, the, the world's most underwhelming destiny uh, expansion. <laughs> and now the, the season of the car. I I um, uh, unfortunately was abroad, not abroad. I was out of town uh, because a friend of my wife's was turning thirty, and there was plans to go to a beach house in Jersey and not do anything at the beach because it's fucking winter still. But mm-hmm. you know, hang out, have a good time. Uh, which turned into, oh shit, this fucking storm is coming. Uh, we spent most of uh, Saturday actually digging cars out because we were going to need them to come back home. <laughs> so it ha- it was coming down hard enough that we had to make multiple trips just to make sure it wouldn't become encased and stuck later. But that was because we needed to, it the next day. So like we I had to, to do it. Something. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I live in a condo uh-huh. in downtown. Yep. There is a parking ban that goes into effect every time there's snow like this, and they mm. plow the lots. But part of the compensation for that is the garages, of which there are many, become free. What? Like, so, <laughs> yeah. So, like, I all we got to do is move our car to a garage that won't charge oh us money during the duration of the ban. <laughs> and so I'm just like, like, you know, six hours before the storm, car gets moved into the garage. It's a big condo building. I don't got to plow. I don't have to shovel. Nothing. <laughs> you know what I got to do? I got to put on some choral music, bake some cookies, and watch the snow come down. And take lots Amazing. of pictures. Amazing. Uh, now, I do, now, the thing I do pay for is, like, Mina will be like, snow is awesome. I don't have to go to the bathroom. Let's hang out here in this blizzard for... <laughs> Uh, three like three hours and I won't do oh. anything or she'll be like oh I want to go to the bathroom now oh but the snow's too high it touches my hiney when I go when I try to like <laughs> squat so no, no I'm not doing that I'm just gonna look at you sadly even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And, like, just not move while we both freeze to death in this blizzard. And I'm like, can, can you just... Can you just shit? I promise your your, your <laughs> steaming log of shit will melt a hole in the snow. It'll be fine. And it's like, no, it feels oh. funny. I don't like it. God. So that's there is that. <laughs> in some ways, worse than the car. Sure. Anyway, <laughs> that'll do it for this week's waypoints. We hope you've enjoyed the break and found it elevating. Please be sure to rate and review us on your podcast podcast platform of choice if it should allow such a thing. This has a different. I like to think, yeah. (laughs) I like to think we're a five star podcast, but it's not for me to say. We'll be back again with Waypoint Radio on Friday. Until then, do not give in to astonishment. Wow! Wow. (laughs) Back, baby. (laughs) It never truly went away. I never gave in to the astonishment. (laughs) 